You are listening to Subro on the Go, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor's Subrogation and Recovery Practice Group, with discussions and perspectives on emerging trends, developments, and best practices. Now let's get started with your hosts, Dave Briscoe and Joe Rich. All right, welcome everyone to another episode of Subro on the Go. This is David Briscoe from the San Diego office of Cozen O'Connor. My co-host Joe Rich is off squeezing some end-of-the-year money from defendants and will be back next episode. So I am joined today by attorneys Dana Myers and Chris Sheravis from our San Diego office. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So as I've told you both for some time, I am unbelievably excited for today's podcast. This episode, (laughs) this is why I wanted to do a podcast in the first place. Uh, Today's episode is called A Thin Line Between Love and Hate. When is there money in your several case? And we're going to be talking about that line between when you have a challenging subro case, when is it a closer, and when is there money in it. And understanding the difference between you know when it's a closer and when there's money is really what defines a subro professional. Some of it is what I call having a subro gut, that, that instinct for when there's money in a case. But there are a series of rules of thumb to follow to help you determine if there's money in your challenging case. So to set the stage for our audience today, we're going to walk through some fairly comedic case examples. And after each case example, uh, where you had gotten money on a case, we're going to discuss each of these rules of thumb for determining if your case has money in it. So Chris, why don't you kick us off with your case? Yes, talk about humorous cases. I have one that um, definitely tops the list. Uh, This is the prank call case that I had in the state of Utah. The crazy facts go like this. So a woman was a guest in the insured's hotel in Utah. In the middle of the night, approximately 2 a.m., I believe the fire department report said, she received a call. The caller asked her, um, actually addressed her by name, and then um, informed her that there was an emergency gas leak in the hotel and asked her to take some steps to prevent gas inhalation. The caller asked her to take the lid off the toilet in the bathroom and hit the ceiling sprinkler heads to activate the water. Side note, water does not dissolve gas, but (laughs) um, at 2 a.m. you're not thinking clearly. (laughs) Then asked her, since it seemed like the caller had her on the hook because she actually did this, she did, she took the toilet lid off and hit the sprinkler head, activating the sprinklers. Water is um, now um, being released into the hotel. Oh my God, what a mess. Then the caller asked her to take that toilet lid again and hit the window. And if a toilet lid doesn't break the window, then use the TV because you need to get air into the hotel. So she does, she does it again. She takes the um, toilet lid, throws it out the window, takes the TV, throws it out the window, um, I don't know if it was like an older hotel or just didn't have that double pane safety glass, but glass broke and this hotel room is destroyed. This is fast. So um, I would screw this up for the record, by the way, because if I, I could just picture myself, one, trying to pick up the TV and throw it out the window and then just doing it wrong and dropping it. In, you're having troubles with the cords. <laughs> right. Having it bounce back off the, the you know, yeah. double uh, pane window and, and land on me. But go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, you drop the toilet on your toe. It's a mess. Um, She actually did, um, unfortunately, get a laceration on her leg from the broken glass of the window, um, which is just par for the course, because this is just the craziest of circumstances. Eventually, 
She hangs up and she evacuates. She goes down the stairs. I believe she also trips down the stairs. And the fire department has responded and is waiting for her downstairs for the interview. And I read the fire department report and I can't help but laugh because it is just the, the funniest of facts for this case. But the fire um, investigator that's questioning her cannot get off the fact that she did all this. <laughs> she received a phone call and destroyed the hotel <laughs> like with no real good reason. Yeah, the caller said there was an emergency, but there's no alarm going off. The hotel management isn't calling, even though they said it was them. Uh, nobody else in the hotel is running around, you know, in the hallways. Nothing is going on. She's just alone in her room, destroying the place. So he can't get off questions of how much alcohol have you had to drink? Are you on any drugs? Did you take any sleeping pills? She's denying all this, but it's just a, a barrage of questioning because the fire investigator just can't believe her. Okay, so obviously Turns out she's sorry, she's the target, right? So she's our sole target so far because she's causing the damage. Um, and we don't know, I presume, who this mysterious prank caller was that, that called her in the middle of the night. Right. So it does turn out it was a prank caller. And um, even with police investigation, no one was able to identify the caller. So our only target, potential target for recovery in a sub case on this, on these crazy circumstances would be the hotel guest. Okay. And then the question becomes, is her reaction reasonable, right? I mean, is, uh, is this a reasonable reaction to getting a prank call? You know, um, can she claim, hey, I was just duped into this. It's not my fault. Somebody prank called me. You know, what do you expect somebody would do under the circumstances? Exactly. And that's the only question. That's the key question of the case is just reasonableness. And there's a couple factors here. One is that the prank caller called multiple people in the hotel. So multiple guests were called or told about a alleged uh, emergency gas leak and hung up. They did nothing. They automatically suspected this was a prank call. They and they went back to sleep. She was the only one that was susceptible enough to these facts. And it could have been due to the, I don't know, a couple glasses of red wine she might have admitted to, uh, some sort of sleeping pills, I don't know. But um, she took the bait and she destroyed the place. It is interesting that she claims uh, the caller identified her by name. It is interesting. So in the police investigation, the call actually came from the hotel. And um, they made those several phone calls to the other guests as well as management. And somehow management was giving out names, guest names to the numbers. So they were able to call her at the, at her hotel room and say, Hey, Mrs. Whatever, um, and address her by her name. So that was really the only part that, you know, had some authentic authenticity to it. Um, but otherwise the caller had a British accent and was telling her to destroy the room that has nothing to do with actually preventing a gas inhalation. It's just, yeah. to me, it was completely ridiculous. <laughs> it was just absurd, the whole thing, and, and nobody else bought it except this lady. Um, but the fact that the hotel was giving out the names and didn't somehow address the situation um, puts some comparative fault on them, which was part of the recovery analysis we had to do. So ultimately, so what happened? Did you ultimately recover money on this case? And, and how did the negotiations play out? Um, so we went through negotiations. And it was pretty intense. Um, the counsel for 
the hotel guest was pretty adamant that <laughs> that she acted reasonable and um, he could find uh, 12 jury members to think the same. So who was, um, uh, who I was couldn't funding stop this? laughing during any of those settlement negotiations yeah. um, just based on the facts. So. Who was uh, who was funding uh, the settlement though? Is she paying out of pocket for this or is this is there a carrier to go after? So that's the important key. Um, your homeowner's insurance will travel with you. So the hotel guest had her homeowner's insurance carrier defending her on this. So that was the pocket we were pursuing. Oh, that's great. And we were able to get a pre-litigation um, settlement out of this one and both parties compromising, but under, under the circumstances and the, uh, the facts and the legal issues were the reasonableness. You know, it's a question for the trier of fact. You'd have to get to a jury um, to decide that. We had the Utah modified comparative fault issue um, on the insured hotel management. Um, and, and really our only pursuit is this uh, hotel guest. And then Utah also has um, a pure several um, uh, jurisdictions. So whatever allocation of fault a trier fact would place on the unidentified caller, that would be taken out. And any allocation of fault on the hotel would be taken out. So we would only get however much a jury would place a percentage of fault on the hotel guest um, for her actions. That's the only recovery we can make. Okay, so you you nailed two important rules of thumb there in, in this analysis. The first was, is there a tribal issue of fact for a jury? And I think that really is the number one rule for is there money in your sub case, is can you get past summary judgment? Uh, you know, a judge will rule for our audience on legal issues, but juries rule on factual disputes. And in this case, as you said, was her behavior reasonable or not? That's a factual issue, not a legal issue for a judge. So we would expect that you would get past summary judgment, and that really is the telltale sign that, that there's money in your case because if you can go the distance and get to a jury, then there's a risk of liability to the defendant, and there is at least some money in your case. And then the second rule you hit on is, What's the uh, uh, joint and several liability situation in the state you're practicing? If you were in California and you get and and she's just one percent at fault, then she's responsible for the full amount of your damages. But in Utah, as you say, it's different. If she's ten percent at fault, you're only getting ten percent of your damages, right? Right. But also, if the insured hotel was fifty percent at fault, then we can't recover. Yeah. So in, important rules to consider as you're evaluating um, whether there's money in your case. For the record, I, I told my 11-year-old uh, last night about this and she's uh, a, about the situation and she referred to the lady as, what, what is she, a dum-dum? And so oh. <laughs> I, I tried, so that, that's me polling a potential 11-year-old uh, juror there. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, well, the jury in Utah, you just don't know. They're conservative. Um, you know, they don't take kindly to the insurance carrier plaintiffs. So, you know, you're you're really risking something there going all the way to the end right. to a jury. Right. Good. Well, well, good result. Good you were able to get money on that one. Um, let's shift over uh, to um, Dana's case summary, and then we'll, after that, we'll talk about another rule of thumb for, um, for determining if there's money in your several case. Yeah, interestingly enough, uh, my interesting case also involves a hotel and water losses. So what I've got is Mr. Jones, we'll call him Mr. Jones. Uh, he's employed by ABC Contracting and his employer, ABC Contracting, says, hey, I've got a great new job out in Northern California. I know you live in Utah, but why don't you come out to Northern California and we'll give you some work? So Mr. Jones 
one day packs up his stuff. He moves over to Northern California and gets put up in a nice hotel near his job site. One night, Mr. Jones decides to take a relaxing bubble bath at three o'clock in the morning. So he turns on the tub, gets into it, and probably because it's three o'clock in the morning, he falls asleep while the tub is filling. Um, and wakes up two hours later at 5 a.m. Apparently the water felt good enough where he didn't wake up for two hours. He turned off the water, called the front desk, and advised of the flooding. See, this, this to uh, me is worse course. because I'm already troubled by, by him. And, and worse than the first one to, to me, really. Because how do you fall asleep in a bathtub? I was trying to ask my wife about this one because... I thought it was ridiculous. She says it's perfectly normal to fall asleep in the bathtub. Maybe I'm setting the bath wrong because I think this is insane that you actually fall asleep <laughs> while you're while you're taking, particularly while the water is still running, which is fairly loud. But go ahead, sorry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a great question. The water is loud. It's obviously flowing onto the floor at this point, so you don't hear it flowing over. It's also interesting to me that his room was on the fourth floor. So we have water running for a consecutively consecutive two hours without the discovery by anybody. So he can't hear a phone call, the door knocking. I mean, nobody notices that this water's running until he wakes up two hours later and calls. The oh, my desk. God. So, so how do you get money on this case? Tell us. So on this one. Mr. Jones, you know, we look at our guest folio, and of course, Mr. Jones is listed as the guest. His uh, credit card number was listed as the card. However, the folio lists the account as belonging to ABC Contractor. Mr. Jones was also staying at the hotel for 76 nights. So I send a, a letter to Mr. Jones saying, hey, you're responsible here. Unfortunately, unlike in Chris's case, Mr. Jones does not have homeowner's insurance does not have runner's insurance, and resides in a mobile home park in Utah. So my next target is Mr. Jones's employer, ABC Contractor. Um, I have the argument that Mr. Jones was working for ABC Contractor at the time of the loss. He was actually staying in the hotel solely because he was performing a job for ABC Contractor. So my argument became that ABC Contractor was vicariously liable for Mr. Jones falling asleep in the bathtub. That's great. So then yeah, this brings up you know, rule number two, really. Um, you know, we talked before, can you get past summary judgment? Rule number two is you've got to know your legal arguments. And in this case, you know, it's vicarious liability and what's the scope of, of you know, his work and in, in, uh, in this situation and whether staying at the hotel and taking a bath it still falls within you know, the scope of his work where they're vicariously liable for his actions. Um, and so this is tough because it could be a legal issue for a judge to decide if there's case law out there to say, you know, no, that's out, staying at a hotel is outside the scope of work. But otherwise, you could argue it's an issue of fact for the jury to decide whether it's within the scope of his employment. Um, so tell me about how this played out for resolution. Yeah, so, of course, the carrier for the contractor initially said, no way does him drawing a bath for himself and then falling asleep at three o'clock in the morning have anything to do with his duties and um, scope of employment with the contractor. Of course, I luckily was able to find a case and, and uh, use it in California that said that the acts which incidentally or indirectly contribute to the employer's services uh, are then create liability for the employer. 
Um, <laughs> then I found another case that actually helped out a little bit more saying that if an employer pays for travel expenses and travel time for an employee, instead of using the local labor force, then they are held responsible or can be held responsible for the actions of the employee that they decide to put up in a hotel. Um, of course, then, you know, the argument is, is him drawing a bath at three o'clock in the morning incidentally or indirectly contribute to that contractor services? And that's kind of where our hanging point was uh, on this one. Uh, Good find, yes, Dana. Absolutely. Finding those helpful legal cases is critical to uh, getting a resolution um, and putting pressure on the defendant to let them know that you will be able to get past summary judgment um, and that there's a basis to take this case to a jury. Uh, great, great, great case, great case examples. Um, that's, I'd like to talk about this all day, but this, that's, that is our time today. Um, there are additional rules of thumb to determine uh, if your case uh, has money in it which we cover in a longer webinar or live presentation. So if anyone out there listening is interested, feel free to reach out, and we're happy to um, share the longer version of this uh, discussion. Otherwise, I want to thank you both, Dana and Chris, for joining me today. This was fun. We definitely have to do this again and talk about some more case examples. We have plenty of funny cases. Yeah. Plenty. Great. We'll, we'll do it again. For the audience, please remember to both subscribe and like our podcast to listen to future episodes. And remember, several folks, get the money.